0: Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series entitled Research Notes in Blockchain is hosted by Quinn DuPont, professor, IEEE member, and author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains by Polity Press. In this episode, Quinn speaks with Professor Kevin Werbach author of The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust to discuss the dynamics of trust as they relate to smart contracts, regulatory issues, and
1: vis-a-vis contract law. All right, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for joining us here. I'm super excited to get a chance to speak to you today because your work's been really informative to my own, and I think you're one of the most practically-minded people sort of in that crypto space. And so that's really, really encouraging to me. And what I wanted to talk to you today about is your work on trust but i kind of want to take the signals that you've left for us and sort of walk into it backwards because i find the concept of trust is uh, a little amorphous and difficult so i want to focus in a little on your work on smart contracts so the first sort of place i think we should start the conversation is smart contracts are purported to offer like efficiency right um, as well as possibly transform the dynamics of trust. And so, in your, uh, you got a paper called Contracts X Makina, really cool paper. And in it, you sort of come to the conclusion that you sort of say, well, look, we're not going to replace contract law with smart contracts because, and they're sort of you, you sort of give this kind of complicated reason. They're not designed to ensure performance before the event, but rather to adjudicate after the event. So I wanna kind of get there, but before we get to your conclusion, you sort of systematically dissemble what a smart contract is versus how contract law works. So I wanna pick up on a couple of those contract law points and just get you to talk about them a little bit. I think it'll be really informative. So the first is this question around incomplete contracting. That tends to be sort of a place where, okay, we can understand kind of quite simply, Tell me why incomplete contracting sort of what it means and why it's a potential challenge to this idea that smart contracts can ever really fully replace contract law.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, and thanks again for the opportunity, Quinn. And I'll I'll, I'll uh, assume that that saying I'm practically minded is actually intended as a compliment in this space. Oh, very much. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so, so you're, so you're okay. not a crazy utopian.
0: <laughs> yes. So so with regard to smart contracts, you hear a lot of people saying smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts, ha-ha. And um, one of the points of this paper is actually uh, smart contracts might be smart, um, but aren't necessarily. And they might actually be contracts, but are not necessarily. Um, So you asked about incomplete contracts. It turns out that there are two major literatures on contracts. One comes out of law and one comes out of economics. And they're almost entirely separate. Uh, both disciplines mm. use the same term. Uh, computer scientists also use uh, either that term or other terms as well. Uh, but just to take the you know the law and the, the legal scholars in the economics, they talk about contracts. But uh, you know, a, a lawyer or a legal scholar is thinking about a contract as a particular kind of legal instrument. There there are certain rules that make something a contract, um, and depending on your legal system, that you know there are different ways that that gets determined. Um, and if something is a contract, then certain consequences flow from that, uh, that your promises become legally enforceable obligations. Um, an economist doesn't really care so much um, about the legal structure and whether it's enforceable in court, but but what does this mean that we can agree about future states? Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. that's what a contract is. It's saying we're going to agree today uh, and that's going to have impact in the future. So this gets to this issue of incomplete contracts, which is which is was the foundation for um, the the winners of the Nobel Prize in economics about uh, four or five years ago. Um, a complete contract is a contract that specifies every possible future state of the world. So it's basically you could code into that contract a set of possibilities. If if the following happens, this will be the result. If you know, it's, if, think about you know, it's a set of if-then statements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Set of if-then statements, and there's you know maybe there's an else at the end or there's but you know we 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 include in that every possible thing that could happen. Um, if we can do that, well then it's great, right? Because we just we just figure out what we want to have happen in every possible scenario, and we put it into the contract. In the real world, that is almost always impossible. E- even a pretty simple contract, which says, "All right, I'm gonna you know uh, sell you this you know uh, five tons of bricks for fifty thousand dollars." no matter how long that contract is, that contract could be 500 pages long. Um, maybe it doesn't mention, what if there's a COVID-19 pandemic? Because five <laughs> years ago, nobody thought about a COVID-19 pandemic. There's you know, just, the world is full of so many possibilities. Our, our uh, you know, as, you know, as, as um, you know, people said, our, we, we have um, bounded rationality. We can't mm-hmm. think of every possibility. So that's the problem for smart contracts. Um, for conventional legal contracts, The solution to that limitation is, well, ultimately, if there's a dispute, you're going to court and the court's going to have to, at the time in the future, say, okay, what do we do? How do we sort this out? Or this is what a lot of the economic literature talks about around incomplete contracts. The parties are going to have to figure out what to do. Does one party say, ah, something happened that now gives me an advantage? You've already made a commitment. You've made investments in this contract. I can hold you up and ask for more money. Um, Or does something else happen? Um, that's what those literature talk about. The problem with smart contracts, um, you know, on blockchain systems is there's nothing there at the other end. That's the whole point, right? That's when people mm-hmm. say, I think incorrectly, these are trustless systems but they're decentralized systems. The, you know, the blockchain, the 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 you know, the evM or whatever it is that, that's executing the computational logic. Um, you code that in at the beginning. Uh, and unless you can actually code in for every possible situation, there is a great possibility that at, you know, time T plus one, something happens that was not anticipated. Um, you know, the code did not, was not designed with that in mind. So therefore, the code is just going to execute uh, and very well may lead to a bad situation that neither party wanted.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, you, you talk about how you say sort of smart contracts are not smart in quite the same way that a, a court can be smart. And that leads me to that, this next sort of idea that you moot in this paper, you talk about, well, intent. Okay, so maybe we need to, if we don't have, we can't do complete contracting here, that seems to be sort of a formal impossibility. Well, what about intent? And you sort of pick up this idea and, in, um, in, you know, problematize intent. But I mean, this is such one of these, this of blurring that you talked a little bit about um, between uh, economics and computer science and, and, of course, law. And intent has this Funny notion because of course we have errors, right? So how do we deal with errors? Are these if they're not intended? So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what it means for intent to be part of contracting, and specifically, you've got these concerns that um, there's an opportunity for kind of an expansion of public law into uh, the private contract law. Could you tell me a little more about what that you know how intent is dealt with, and particularly how it's dealt with with smart contracts?
0: So that's a different, problem. So one problem is this incompleteness problem that that we just can't write down ex ante every possible situation. A different problem is there are some elements to properly executing the contract that are just, they they cannot be formally specified. Uh, Intent is one example of that. So you have a scenario, there was this famous example called uh, the DAO exploit where there was a set of smart contracts that was a, a kind of investment, um, you know, collective investment mechanism. And someone found that you could execute a, uh, you know, a recursive call um, consistent with the, the code of the smart contract that would basically create a, what they called a child Dow, you know, a, a subsidiary part of the Dow and pull basically all the money out. Um, and, um, that, that was theft. That was a thief who was trying to steal, you know, at the time it was, you know, $60 million that they would have gotten away with of people's money um, to steal it. Um, you and I know that. Uh, the computers don't know that. From the perspective of the computational logic, um, what is the difference between that theft and someone who was doing something that was the intended, you know, the, the point of the system maybe was to encourage people to explore this possibility of creating child DAOs, or it was to transfer money to people who could figure out a way to use this call. Again, that for, for us humans, that seems crazy. We, we look at this mm-hmm. scenario and say it was theft, um, but, but that's because we understand intent and the intent's not mm-hmm. in the code. I mean, the people who created mm-hmm. the code had intent and that was their intent was not that this was a use. But that's not in the code itself. Um, and so this is another problem about smart contracts that, that often, even, even when the, the, you know, the code is precise and we're specifying things that can be digitized, there's a set of expectations that simply cannot be reduced to any formal language. Um, and you know, so that means at, you know, at some point we, we may need to uh, go back and read it back in. Um, and we may need to say this was the point about uh, public law. Um, it may be that there are some contracts you can't and shouldn't be agreeing to. Um, mm. you know, this is not just related to the issue of intent. Uh, you know, you can make a smart contract um, that says if you assassinate the president of the United States, you will get and, and that's verified um, you know, through some sort of oracle system, you'll get paid ten million dollars. <throat> technically there's not, nothing to stop you from making that contract. I don't want to live in a world where that contract <laughs> mm-hmm. exists and is successful. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, and again, we have a, and nor, nor do I think computer scientists want to facilitate assassinations either. Um, but, but you, you know, when you start thinking about more contractual activity being specified in this way and, and, and just to, you know, to step back, I think this is a good thing. I think this is a tremendous innovation with great potential in a lot of ways, including for contract law, you can do a lot of things more efficiently with a smart contract than with a human contract. The the legal system has all kinds of problems. One thing, though, it does well is no judge is going to enforce that assassination contract. And so, you know, we may need to think about contract law, bringing back in some of those public policy considerations, um, you know, when they, you know, when they come into play here. Yeah. And so that's,
1: you kind of, you take it from there in the paper and then you say, okay, what if we've, if we go from this intent idea and you say, you then start to talk about conveyances and you sort of, you, you got this really interesting idea of um, suggesting that smart contracts present agreements without uh, further promises to perform and this is couched now in this discussion of like a meeting of the minds and and this this sort of mutual assent and and so that seems to me we're getting at a kind of an epistemic issue here, which is a precisely where those courts come in. Could you tell me a little bit more about how conveyances, while they don't capture ultimately, that's not your story that you're sort of landing on, they do transform the notion of intent to some extent. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, so this is the part of the paper where we make
0: the claim that. Uh, Legal scholars and lawyers should understand smart contracts, not just because they are an innovation in contracting and, and blockchain is important, but actually because they are a, an example that helps us understand legally what a contract is. Um, mm. Because, again, you know, going back, if you ask a lawyer or a legal scholar what's a contract, I, I can tell you a set of definitions. You know, there's a, there's a meeting of the minds and consideration, all of that. Um, but if you say, well, what, what's a contract actually do? What, what, when we say contracts, what, what is that class of things? Um, there's actually great debate among legal scholars. And my, my co-author on that paper was Nico Cornell, who is a, a, a normative private law scholar, who is involved in these debates about contract law. Is, is a contract basically a, fundamentally about promises? Because promises are mm-hmm. about commitment and ethics and so forth. Or you know, is a contract about something else? Uh, is it some you know, limitation or, uh, on what I can do in the future? W- what we say is what the smart contract illuminates about contract law is that uh, contracts are about remedies. Co- contracts are about what happens if something goes wrong. We are going to put the court system in service of redressing that problem. Um, and a smart contract is not that, because again, there's no court system. Now you can, you can layer on, uh, for example, some blockchain-based decentralized arbitration system in the smart contract, or you can have a Ricardian contract where you hash a legal contract to a smart contract and vice versa we talk about some of it there, there certainly are ways to address these problems. Um, but, but fundamentally what, what the smart contract helps us understand is what's a contract actually doing? What, what does it mean to digitize a contract? Because obviously you know most contracts are digital. They're, they're you know they're not written on pieces of paper with, with quill pens. Um, what's the difference between a smart contract and all of the digital contract that happens all the time? That's what gets to the the conveyances, where the the idea with the conveyance is, it's not just we are making a contract that I will sell you land. The the, the contract is actually the transfer of the land, Um, and so that that, again, there are all these legal doctrines that we talk about that that come into play, Um, and you know, there's important elements of that if you're a contract law scholar, but I'm assuming most people who are listening to this are not. And Mm -hmm. our point is actually there's a lot of importance for those other domains as well. Uh, You know, these are different tools. Uh, And there are areas where they overlap and there are areas where they don't. And there are areas where we can actually make them overlap better. But we need to design that into the system. And and one of the the things that we're worried about and I'm I'm worried about is, you know, taking elements of contract law or whether we call it contracts or not. There's now a whole bunch of people who say, oh, it shouldn't be called smart contracts. It should be called persistent scripts. It doesn't really matter because legally it functions as a contract Um, without uh, engaging with centuries of of thought and, you know, again, practical working through what are the opportunities and affordances and problems of these different mechanisms, and then figuring out what's the right set of solutions for the situation we have.
1: Mm -hmm. And to go from there to talk a little bit more about, you know, some of these other possible benefits or uses I, I, one of the, one of the things I thought was really interesting, you, you talked you talked a little bit about morality, and you talked about sort of legal obligation, but there's this interesting way in which, if we talk a little uh, less concretely about the minutia of law, and just think a little bit more broadly about smart contracts, and you said, what are these contracts doing? Um, they're offering us these different sets of tools and things like this. I'm, one of the things I've I've always been fascinated about um, uh, smart contracts and, and maybe contract law more generally is that how it has a way to I mean I think you even say you say it strengthens uh, uh, a voluntarily assumed commitments so which seems to me it's, it's in a way there's a it's supporting communities in a way and and I think that's where. It gets really interesting with smart contracts, then we can start if we can maybe take a bit of a leap and start to talk a little bit more about how they're now work, they work in organizations, and specifically getting to where I think which is your ultimate goal, you want to see governance by design, you want to see a layered uh, kind of approach. So do you have any thoughts about how smart contracts can make that jump from, you know, you and I making a contract to uh, sell you, uh, you know, some good or service to a, a, an entity, an institution that can sort of support richer modes of engagement and interactivity and so on and so forth?
0: Right. Uh, absolutely. A lot of thoughts. That's, those are very important points. Um, this is the point where the T word comes into play, where this this you know, right. discussion of smart contracts and legal formalities connects to trust. Um, because, you know, you ask a question that seems obvious, well, what do contracts have to do with trust? And people say, well, you have a contract, you trust the parties. Well, no, I could just as well say the opposite. Why do I need a contract with you? It's because I do not trust you. And this was actually, mm-hmm. right, because if I trusted you, I wouldn't need you to sign a contract. Um, if you're mm-hmm. my brother, I'm not going to f- ask you to sign a formal contract. You're going to pay me back for something because that means I don't trust you. If I do require my brother to sign a contract, I don't trust that brother. Um, this is an insight that the philosopher Thomas Hobbes back, had back in the 17th century, um, which is uh, what do contracts do? They invoke the power of the state. He called it the Leviathan, um, which again relates to what I said before. Um, if there is a dispute and one party breaches the contract, A court can invoke the power of the government to say, no, you must uh, provide redress. You must either fulfill your obligations or pay some damages. And if you don't, we're going to throw you in jail uh, because the government can do that. Mm -hmm. So this relates to the notion of trust. Um, And in other work that I do, I wrote a book on blockchain and trust. I talk about this as one, uh, what I call architecture of trust. There are others. Blockchain is a different architecture of trust. It's not the end of trust. Um, but it's an architecture of trust that says, well, what if we don't have that state leviathan in the background? Um, mm. That doesn't mean there's no trust. And it doesn't mean, well, all we have to trust is cryptography. Um, it means we're building systems with different kinds of affordances. Um, and we need to unpack what are the governance mechanisms? What are the consensus mechanisms? What are the control points? What are the the you know, points where there is aggregation of power? Um, and all of that um, and understand what that system actually looks like from a trust standpoint because the system as a whole is trustworthy, um, if it's a you know, functional blockchain. Uh, but there's lots of points that we need to understand on trust. So that's you know ties into you know, your question. Um, I think about uh, smart contracts as this incredibly powerful um, you know, set of uh, Legos uh, or rector set mm-hmm. tools, however you want to describe it. We now have the possibility to use um, a, a whole set of tools to create new kinds of social arrangements. Um, and for, they're not the right set of tools for everything. There's some things for which just, you know, I promise and, and you agree to my promises is good enough. Um, but they allow us to ask, as you said, institutionally. Um, you know, it's, it's often said in law and economics that a corporation is nothing but a nexus of contracts. It's, it's the point where a whole bunch of contracts, employees and employers, buyers and sellers, partners, all, where all that comes together, that's the corporation. So we can say, well, okay, what does it mean to build a nexus of smart contracts? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. How would it be identical to existing corporations? How would it be radically different? Um, and again, I don't have I don't start with an assumption that it's obvious what solution is better for what example. I think I think I think too many people do. Uh, I think that's the question we need to ask. It's really exciting to be able to structure the world differently. In ways that may be more efficient and more fair than what we've done before, but that's really the work we need to
1: do, right? This and this is a basically effective governance in a way um, that that structuring process. It's all, about, is that it's all right? about governance. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, so maybe just kind of to to wrap us up, you'd mentioned you said, okay, well, we don't need like the state doesn't need to be invoked here, yet it. It, it does exist. And so this brings in questions of um, of, of the actual role of law and, and more and more generally uh, regulation. And so I just thought maybe to kind of conclude, you could talk me through a little bit about some of your thoughts around regulation. We've seen the sort of the history of regulation has been, what I don't know, roughly one of know your customer AML at the edges. Um, there are worries around, you talk in some of your work around failures to safeguard. Um, you know, there's there's potential implications if you're making mistakes uh, while designing these things. There's, there's regulatory teeth that have opportunities here, but there's also, you suggest there's ways in which we can allow a certain amount of innovation to occur. Maybe we need to think about safe harbors or no action letters or sandboxes, all these kinds of things. So that's all to say, you've got some recent research that basically demonstrates that the uh, changing regulatory environment, if I read it correctly, actually doesn't seem to have a big empirical effect on like market conditions. So a lot of the kind of, um, worries around, uh, this seem to be somewhat misplaced.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, the, the first point is, uh, you know, people tend to assume who are not you know deeply involved in these debates, um, that you know, there's regulation and there's innovation, and we basically have to choose whether we want more of one and 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 you know less of the other, and and I think it's not nearly a unitary relationship. There are times where regulation facilitates innovation, um, and there are lots of times where innovation is not really the issue. Um, we have you know several hundred years, at least three hundred years of experience with the global financial system, and universally, what that has shown is if you have a financial market where there are no regulatory constraints and people can just do whatever trade they want, um, there will be massive exploration, exploitation. Uh, there will be massive fraud. There will be massive boom and bust cycles. Until we had the Federal Reserve, there were there were what they called panics. There were depressions every 10 years or so. Um, that's not a world anyone wants. Even, even people who all they want to do is make money. I'm not talking about ethically. I'm talking about if you want a well-functioning <laughs> financial system, you don't want that world. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's good regulation and bad regulation. Regulation needs to change and adapt. I'm not saying like, and therefore, we all need regulation in every context. Um, but but you know, regulation facilitates market innovation often. And so that's something we need to look at in the blockchain context. Um, regulation is also something that we can think of as a design space. Um, so mm-hmm. what are the options we have for different kinds of regulatory structures? What are the options we have to use the technology itself? Smart contracts can be used as a form of regulatory technology. Blockchains, because they potentially provide this transparent visibility, may actually be a way to um, allow regulators to audit transactions um, by just tapping into the blockchain itself. There's lots of potential to transform regulation this way. Um, the, the paper that you mentioned, you know, the empirical paper, was, was partly pushing back on this assumption people have. That basically, um, you know, if we want to see development of innovation around blockchain and digital assets, um, regulation is always going to be bad. And so we said, well, let's ask. Let's 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 look at, you know, on on exchanges all around the world when regulators make an announcement about some kind of regulatory activity. And and we divided it into I can't remember how many, like eight different categories. Um, How does that affect trading activity, trading volume on the market, which is what finance people will tell you that that, you know, it does it actually have an impact different windows. We did an event study. Um, and what we found was no statistically significant impact across the board. No matter what governments are doing all across different jurisdictions, it doesn't have an impact that's statistically significant. Now, now, normally when you, you do an empirical paper and you get that result, you throw it in the trash, right? Because you're looking for something <laughs> that's statistically significant. Um, right. I said, no, actually, this is fascinating because everyone assumes the issue was going to be, is it going to make the market go up or go down? And the answer is just the fact of regulation itself, per se, does not change market activity. Now, that does not mean that when China banned crypto exchanges, that didn't have an effect on the market in China. It does not mean that some you know, regulation is bad uh, or some regulation is good. Um, but, but regulation itself is not this unitary variable people think it is. Yeah. Back to what I said before, we need to ask, you know, what's what's the purpose of it? Um, and that's a lot of the work I'm doing now, both, both scholarship, also working directly with regulators and companies in the space is saying, okay, what are the problems here? You know, I think we can all agree terrorists should not have an easy time getting money. Child sex traffickers should not have an easy time getting money to do what they do. No, no one in the blockchain space disagrees with that. Okay, how do we address that problem in a reasonable way where the benefits we get from the regulatory activity outweigh the cost. and there's lots of different costs. And what can we do technically in the design of systems and the design of regulation to increase the benefits and reduce the cost? Those are the conversations that we are needing to have right now.
1: That's fascinating. And I think that's a wonderful place to end it. Thank you very much, Kevin.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Quinn. Thank you for listening to our interview with Professor
1: Kevin Werbach. To learn more about the IEEE blockchain initiative, please visit our web portal. At blockchaini